Well, hi, everybody. I'm Kim Winter, uh, CEO of Logistics Executive Group. It's my pleasure to welcome you to today's uh, session of Executive Insights. And it's, uh, it's a huge pleasure to welcome Deborah, Deborah Elms from Singapore. Deborah, welcome. Thank you very much. So, Deb, you've been, um, you've been in Singapore, I hear, for around about 17 years. You are a, a little bit of an institution in Singapore and uh, of course, we know you from a, a range of uh, guises over there, and uh, currently you're the um, you're the uh, the chair of the Asia Business Trade Association. Uh, you're the executive director of the Asia Trade Centre, and you've got a very long history in terms of engagement uh, right across all things trade, pan national. Uh, of course, US background, but. Uh, one of the longest serving um, US citizens, I would have thought, in, in Singapore. Deb, why don't you welcome again and why don't you give us a bit of a heads up on uh, your your upbringing and your early career um, before you came to, to Singapore and to Asia, uh, your background and a little bit about your career leading up to where you are now. Sure. So I finished college and I went right into a teaching program that was at the time brand new to put college graduates into underserved districts in the U.S. So I did that very briefly um, and then ended up at a think tank where I thought I don't have enough think thoughts in my head to stay in a think tank for very long <laughs> and I don't have enough knowledge to do to really do the job well. So I started um, a master's degree at, at USC um, in L.A. at the time. Then I realized that if I was going to pursue my interests, which especially was around trade trade disputes, uh, I needed to get a PhD. So then I went up to Seattle to do a PhD in political science, also on trade disputes. Ironically, U.S.-Japan trade disputes, which look very, very similar, surprisingly similar, actually, to U.S.-China trade disputes today. Um, and then I was going to just be an academic. So I came out to Singapore to work at a local university, and I found that less interesting than I thought it would be. So I started quite quickly forming another center to work on uh, negotiations, trade negotiations with government officials and trained government officials in Asia for eight and a half years. And then found that a missing gap, which I think maybe your audience will appreciate, is that there was, at least here in Asia, very little connection between companies and governments, especially around trade and trade policy. And this, I think, is a missed opportunity. So I left my local Singapore University and started the Asian Trade Center. And then we ran that for a couple of years. And then finally, um, a couple of years ago now, we launched a trade association, the Asia Business Trade Association, because there was no trade association that matched Asia. And so if you were a government and you wanted business input, it was unclear to you, I think, where did you, who did you call? And if you were a company and you wanted to provide feedback to governments, again, sort of how would you do so? So ABTA was formed to be that bridge between companies and governments. And now we have actually several thousand members, but most of our membership is in the SME category because this is another critical but very underserved part of the market here in the region, uh, association that brings together small businesses and then hooks them to governments. Awesome. Well, very, uh, very erudite explanation of the, of the last, uh, I don't know how many years, but at least a couple of decades tucked away there, I think. Um, yeah. So you, you are a bit of an institution in, uh, in the Singapore business uh, trade in logistics and supply chain markets. Um, I think we've met at a number of uh, international conferences um, which you've spoken and uh, been on a number of panels, obviously. 
So trade this year, I suppose the obvious question. Um, this year has been very disruptive uh, in a number of uh, ways. Um, Asia, of course, with the dragon economies have traditionally been both Southeast Asia, where you are in North Asia, have been the powerhouses of growth and, and development across uh, business and supply chain over the last 10, 15 years. What sort of impacts have the um, has the crisis had on trade um, in Southeast Asia from your perspective? So, of course, we've had hugely disruptive trade figures. And it, what's unusual about this pandemic uh, is that it's hit both supply and demand, and it's global. And so that whole combination is causing firms heartburn. It's certainly causing your supply chain colleagues a lot of sleepless nights trying to sort out how do we manage disruption in everything, in supply, in demand, final markets, intermediate goods. How do we find a growth opportunity when this appears to be hitting everywhere or hitting everywhere on a slightly rolling basis, but nonetheless, nothing seems to be quite safe at the moment. So that's been a real challenge. And of course, again, no surprise to your, to your audience, the impact is different in different sectors. So some sectors, obviously, travel tourism, particularly hard hit, aviation, et cetera. Other sectors doing very well, obviously, medical, medical devices, medical equipment. Um, and then everything sort of in between is experiencing different kinds of disruption. So some firms, even firms that you think they should be doing quite well because the demand for their products is the same, you know, uh, everyone always needs, as an example, toilet paper. Uh, you know, one of the things we've noticed, though, is that firms, even though you need toilet paper, what you need is now packaging for home delivery of toilet paper rather than institutional toilet paper rolls. So while the demand is still there for the product, the segment that's now booming is not the same segment that was doing well, you know, six months, eight months ago. And so even for firms that are succeeding in COVID, it's still causing disruptive challenges internally as they try to shift, you know, how and how long will this last? We don't know. So do we want to shift all of our commercial packaging into retail packaging or not? You know, these kinds of questions are in almost every firm. Yeah, so I mean, toilet paper has been a, a big, big ticket item all across the world and panic buying and what have you over, over the last year or so. Things do seem to have settled down a little bit now. Um, tell us about, I mean, in, in many countries, there have been a number of government initiatives and incentives for organisations to um, reshape, uh, rescale, transform, support for that. Um, tell us a little bit about what the approach has been in Singapore or other countries which you've got hands-on knowledge of in regards to incentives and support and uh, initiatives. Well, let me start with Singapore. Singapore has a long history of providing different kinds of packages and incentive schemes for multinationals to locate in Singapore, either the whole operation or their regional headquarters and so forth. So that is a longstanding uh, project here in Singapore. They have continued to do so under COVID, of course, uh, focus slightly different around things that one needs in a pandemic, worries about food security in the future, uh, has driven the orientation a little bit differently than it might have been a year ago, but the, the idea is still the same. Uh, and I think Singapore's had a very laudable track record of bringing in multinationals, as you can see from the sho shockingly high number of multinationals that are headquartered here in Singapore. Um, mm -hmm. 
other for other countries in the region are have not practiced this in the same way or they haven't had the same length of, of experience. Uh, and what they've been doing now, depending on the government, many of them are trying to capture moving supply chains. So this this is a project that got underway in the last two years of US-China trade war, where a lot of governments said, wait, there's firms who are going to be looking to get out of China. We want them to come here. We will provide different kinds of incentive packages for them to come. I think the challenge for government in general is that no firm that I've met uh, is going to move just because they got a government incentive package. It's gen- these are generally not large enough. They're generally not su- substantial enough. They don't last long enough for you to say, I'm going to overlook economic fundamentals <laughs> and I'm going to relocate into a place just because the government is going to hand me some kind of cash when I arrive. So I think for firms, they are taking advantage. Of course, if you're going to give me cash for doing something I already intended to do, I'll take it. So you're, what you're seeing is that firms that had already planned or had already in process a plan to move, especially out of China and into somewhere else, are taking advantage of these incentive programs, but it's not because of the incentive program. It's just an added sweetener for why we're going here and not there. So we have a real mix. And then we have a lot of governments, of course, in Asia that don't have the fiscal power to be able to offer much of an incentive one way or the other. They just don't have the cash. So you you, you and your team at uh, Asia Trade Center are a go-to point for inquiries and knowledge from traders, um, companies that are manufacturing, shippers, um, supply chain logistics companies, uh, not only around tariffs, but also about policy and about regulations in, in different parts of the world. Um, what, what have you seen happen since this year started, since the crisis started? Has there been an uptick in inquiries? Has there been uh, more interest in finding out about new markets? What what has the main interest been? Has there been an increase in, in business for you guys? And what has that been all about? We have actually been doing uh, quite well. In fact, all, we, we basically, I won't get into the details, but we have five different entities in our small universe. And all five of them are suddenly busy, which has not happened before and is kind of yeah. overwhelming at the moment. But on the supply chain side in particular, what's been happening is that firms realize that competitiveness is important. I mean, it's always been important, but but business as usual doesn't work. How do we find new sources of competitiveness? And so they've been coming to us in particular for help using all of these trade agreements in Asia as a way to immediately reduce your overall costs. And we found all different kinds of firms, from small ones to quite large ones, complicated firms in different sectors who are coming to us to help them unravel their supply chain uh, to seek to figure out, first of all, how do they manage their supply chain? And often it's frankly poorly done. Um, and then what are, the, the, the first thing for us especially is tariffs. What are the tariffs that they are paying and where can they avoid paying those tariffs just by using existing FTAs? So don't change anything in your supply chain, just map it on to, t- to uh, FTAs and then see whether you actually get benefits. And in many cases, firms are discovering that their costs can drop overnight 10%, 20%. I mean, it depends on the product and the, the, mm-hmm. com- the countries that are covered, but could be in immediate benefits. And then other firms are saying, okay, well, as we think about changing our supply chain, let's also think about FTAs. So if we were to shift sourcing 
where should we think about? And they're not always the obvious answers. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. But what would be the benefits of either moving or expanding in this location versus that location? So we see that. Or if I want to shift up manufacturing, or if I want to do both. So in many cases, firms, they tend to be not so creative, frankly. So they don't always say, how can I think about opportunities that have never been available before? How do I think through doing things completely differently and yet may end up with some enormous advantages for our firm in terms of lower costs or higher sales or both? Mm. And we're finding firms then looking at that sort of last step. If we were to completely think things differently, what would that look like? And in particular, on our side, of course, how can we use trade agreements as a as a mechanism to start that conversation rather than sort of sit down at a blank piece of paper and say, how do I become more competitive tomorrow? Okay. Yeah, interesting. I mean, we've, we've been in um, Asia for the last 15 years, as you're aware, <coughs> excuse me, as you're aware, and from our various offices around Asia, we've observed over the last year a number of inquiries to us, which are not generally, we're not generally qualified to, to handle. Um, in regards to alternative markets uh, for, for companies to look at, other than, of course, uh, the big um, scenario that's been going on regarding China, the elephant in the room, and, and uncoupling and nearshoring into other areas around the world and, and just uh, reducing that reliance on one source for products and, and uh, manufacturing items in particular. Have you seen much happening? Can you shed any light on that to us uh, in regards to the move towards uh, nearshoring or un uncoupling as, as everybody's talking about at the moment? I am less convinced that this is happening. I think there are a lot of firms who are thinking about it, who are yeah. planning for it. Many firms around COVID in particular discovered an unhealthy <laughs> reliance on one critical supplier for one critical component. Now that is often, I it seems, not an obvious supplier or an obvious component. It's often some relatively minor thing further down in the supply chain that when that is not available or is not available quickly or prices change or whatever, suddenly throws the whole chain you know, out of alignment. And so there is definitely rethinking those choke points, those critical suppliers, those critical components, and where else can we use those? Where can we diversify? Um, but I don't see a lot of firms yet Okay. deciding to really invest because it's expensive to invest. So really expensive investments in other locations in this environment today. I haven't seen a lot of it, but I think perhaps as we go into 2021 and as the overall environment starts to stabilize, firms may feel like they have enough revenue or enough incentive to make that sort of big investment and change the way they've been doing business, like in, in actual terms, not just in hypothetical terms. Okay. Yeah, good. Thanks. So, I mean, uh, we talked a little bit earlier about disruption and this year, if anything, has been as much about disruption as anything else. Um, but, you know, obviously challenges, but we've seen a lot of upsides occur and a lot of companies finding new ways of doing things and transforming and transitioning reshaping and rescaling. From your perspective and the lens that you look through from the trade world, what would be a couple of tips that you would have an advisory to uh, our audience and companies who are looking at um, dealing with disruption and, and managing their way through into uh, 2021? Any, anything from your perspective and, and your pers in the way that you look at the world? I mean, there's a 
there's a couple of things. It depends on the way in which you are organized. But one of the things that's been striking to us, at least when we're trying to help firms, is the level of internal disorganization in your own in your own ability to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. So we're finding firms that have, you know, sort of five business units. All five business units have their own independent systems, their own independent procurement pro- processes, their own supply chain people, potentially. They don't seem to always talk to each other. And so the first thing I think that you can, you know, seize this crisis as an opportunity to relook at your internal processes and make sure that you actually have visibility over what your own company is doing. <laughs> what is it procuring from where? Why? Why are we doing it five different ways? Like, can we rationalize that in some way? Um, and in the process of that, we're finding that a lot of firms are still not harnessing some potential software benefits, uh, which can help with this. Right now, they're, they're, you know, some of them are on a napkin. Some of them are still on Excel spreadsheets. You know, we had a firm that delivered four and a half million purchase orders to us to say, please sort through this and get whatever information you need from this. Well, four and a half million purchase orders on an Excel spreadsheet is really a nightmare for data like, how am I supposed to make sense of that? That took us forever, uh, much longer than it should have. And you will not be surprised to know when you have four and a half million purchase orders on a spreadsheet, you're paying too much. <laughs> you are paying too much in customs. You're paying too much in a lot of other areas uh, because you just don't know what you're what you're doing and you don't know what you're not doing. So, so getting your own internal house in order seems to be important. And then, of course, coming from the trade side, Making sure that you do leverage these trade agreements, I really cannot stress enough how important this is because this is a, for many firms, a very simple fix, really a very simple fix of just applying existing trade agreement rates to what you do today can result in significant benefits. Again, you know, 5, 10, 12% yeah. overnight goes from whatever that is to zero. That's amazing. Yeah. And in some sectors, it's even more impressive. So like in agriculture, as an example, if you're trying to move food products back and forth, not only do you have high tariffs, but they're super complicated often, right? So it's it's by weight of the product. It's by the amount of sugar in a product. It could be the amount of dairy component in a product. So it's like mind-blowingly complicated. But if you used a trade agreement, in some cases, it drops to zero. So you don't have to worry about dairy components, sugar components, or any of that other stuff. You just say, I want to go from A to B. Here's the agreement that allows me to go from A to B. Make it so. And you suddenly save an awful lot of money, and your compliance costs fall dramatically as well. Well, I'm sure you're going to be ringing some alarm bells and and putting some thought bubbles into people in this audience because um, it really sounds like the complexity and the bureaucracy of it all Um has within it a lot of opportunity and, uh, and especially in terms of tariffs and, and navigating the way through those, those things. Yes. But we don't talk a lot about politics, hardly at all, on, on the show. But I am going to ask you, we're right in the cusp of uh, 20-something days into the election in the US. Um, irrespective of, of what's going to happen in that, um, is, is the election itself going to have a, a significant effect, do you think, on, on trade? Uh, whether it be affecting the U.S. and or other countries? I think it could have a huge effect, actually, uh, in trade. Uh, as, to take this most simple example, right now the Trump administration has been strangling the global trading regime uh, for by stopping the most important part from working, by refusing to engage around a whole lot of of issues going on. And so the global trading regime is slowly, I would argue, sort of crumbling from within. 
That is likely to continue under a Trump 2.0 because this is a longstanding um, issue for them. So it would continue under a Biden administration. By contrast, they may have some complaints about the way the system has worked, needs some updating, et cetera, but they will not collapse the system. They will be working with others, reengaging, working with others to make it happen again, make it work better for the future. So I think right there, for especially global companies, that is a huge implication for them on what is ultimately one country's presidential election. So I think there's an awful lot riding on this in the trade space, starting with what happens in the global trading regime, which every company uses as the sort of bedrock for their conducting their daily operations. Okay. And from your perspective, uh, how quickly would you see, depending on the outcome of the election, how quickly would you see impacts one way or the other taking place? Would that be pretty immediate or would it be a slow burn? I think it's going to be a while. So if it's a Trump 2.0, of course, that that doesn't take long to implement. Um, If it's a Biden administration, they're going to have a challenge on their hands, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is so many officials at all levels in nearly every agency in the U.S. are missing key staff. They're already missing key staff. And when you have an administration change, sometimes the top levels go, the bureaucracy usually stays. But at this point, it's going to take some time to restaff that bureaucracy. Mm. That's, That's the first challenge. The second challenge is that you've had a complete shift on trade among the two U.S. political parties. It used to be that Republicans were reliably in favor of trade and business and so forth. And Democrats were, they weren't anti-trade, but they were more skeptical, more worried about the harm to, potential harm to labor and environment. And that tended to be their focus. Under the Trump team, we've had a bit of a reversal on this, where suddenly many Democrats are actually more pro-trade than many Republicans. And so trying to sort out what does that mean in an incoming Congress, because it's also the Congress that changes besides the president, I think it's going to take some time because what what's evo- what's possible and what's not possible in the next Congress is also unclear. Of course, it depends on what the election results are and so forth. But I think it's going to take a little bit of time to sort this out. So okay. what I would expect under a Biden administration in the short run is nothing new and damaging, but also not much that's new and um bringing people together, because it will take them some some domestic time to sort of sort out all these details. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. I mean, I'm sure the audience is going to be able to get some good good clarity on that and and help them plan ahead, depending on the way things are working. Certainly, from what I'm seeing on the the wires at the moment, Biden seems to be ahead, but we saw what happened last time. So um, you never know. Placing any bet. <laughs> you Especially never know. The one area, if I could just say, the one area that I think will be less changed than people imagine is U.S.-China. So yeah. while we will see a reset globally, we may say a reset with Japan, with others. U.S.-China, I think, is going to be rocky for some extended period of time, and I so I think firms that are sort of imagining that we will eliminate all of this tariff and cross-tariff back and forth between the U.S. and China on, you know, January 21st or whatever that day is, um, Mm. are going to be disillusioned because that's not going to happen. And you're not going to see a sort of sudden warmth between the U.S. and China going forward, even under a Biden administration. Yeah, Yeah, interesting. I I suppose that leads me into uh, a general knowledge question. I know you've uh, got another meeting to go to, so I'm 
couple of quick fire questions to wrap up. Mm-hmm. Um, first one is, all things considered currently where we stand in the world today, um, what parts of the world, which countries or what regions are best positioned for growth moving forward from where things are at currently? Asia remains at the forefront for a whole variety of reasons, not the least of which is that we, we haven't had a lot of trade in Asia for Asia. We've had trade in Asia for the US, trade in Asia for the EU, trade in Asia for Japan a little bit, but we haven't had Asia for Asia. And at whatever it is now, 3 billion consumers and counting in Asia, that's starting to matter a lot. So I think there is a lot of scope for Asia to continue to grow notwithstanding the current COVID crisis. So I think Asia, definitely going to grow. And then I think you're going to have some unusual suspects potentially, because as you think about diversifying your supply chain and not reshoring, but nearshoring, there will be some winners out of that. Vietnam, clearly. Mexico, doing quite well, although it's a bit tricky because of the domestic situation in Mexico, which is a little bit volatile. Eastern Europe, seems to be doing quite well. A lot of firms that are interested in the European market are moving in or expanding in their Eastern Europe operations and potentially where you are. Um, I think that especially for servicing other parts, not just the Middle East, but other parts of the globe from there, I think makes a lot of sense. So there are a few places that I think will do well uh, in a post-pandemic world, Uh, but I think Asia will continue to drive most of the trade increases in the coming couple of years. Okay. Yeah, I I guess the number of inquiries that we're receiving at our trade facilitation business here uh, from this office would uh, reinforce that. There's been a real uptick in the last few months, and whether that's part of reshoring or nearshoring or alternative uh, distribution pivoting centre away from North Asia to to this part of the world, um, we're not not 100% sure, but it's it's encouraging to see the amount of activity. Hey, Deb, I really appreciate your insights and your sure. openness and spending time with us and sharing with the audience um, all the information that you have. We really wish you well. I know you've got a great team Thank there you. in Singapore. And uh, may, the, may the inquiries continue and the work that you do Thank between you. governments and private sectors continue as well. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. And to our audience, thank you for joining us. Stay safe, everybody in the supply chain that's keeping us safe. Uh, thank you for all your efforts and uh, I wish everybody uh, a good day. Thanks a lot and thanks again, Dan.